just try to picture. It's spring in the westernmost part of the colony of Virginia, and you are witness to a rich variety of trees, oaks, chestnuts, producing that wonderful nut and the puddings and soups stuffed inside roasted chickens on colonial tables. Evergreen, or Christmas trees as we might know them, dotting the landscape. Apple trees, producing the abundant fruit of the American colonies, eaten or formed into a mash and trunk. Elms, maples, honey locusts, those Judas trees or redwood with their pink heart-shaped leaves. Pinus strobus or white pine with his green prickly needles. Purple dogwoods, yellow birch with its leaves like golden hair dusting the scene. The Blue Ridge Mountains ever present in the background. And from those mountains, the Rivanna River flows through southeast towards what is now the town of Charlottesville and what becomes the watershed of Chesapeake Bay. This is Albemarle County, Virginia named after a British earl, and it would have been the absolute frontier of the colony of Virginia at the time, a place where the average citizen of the cities of the Crown Colony, Yorktown, Richmond, Williamsburg, would probably not have seen in their colonial lifetime. It was a time when nature was not something in the background, but very much a part of life. Its change is critical, not just to ruin a Sunday baseball game, but for all aspects of life. It was the source of food, the source of heat, as well as shade the source of inspiration, and even entertainment. And this frontier area would have been very familiar to the signer and author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. And to his father, Peter, it was an absolute paradise, and as a talented surveyor of the Virginia colony, it was his to explore. He would go deep into the woods exploring, and that was a love that never stopped and was passed on to his son, Thomas. Even as an elderly man, his son, Thomas, would still delay the writing of letters due to frequent trips into new wooded lands. The space of the woods, the silence, sometimes the isolation, could not help but inspire ideas about liberty and connect so well with human events and ideas of the Enlightenment stirring at the time. In a small section of the Rivanna, Peter Jefferson constructed a mill. It would have been the first structure in this area at the time. He was a good and smart husband, and he called the area Shadewell, Virginia, after the London parish where his wife was christened. He was free to do it, because Peter was probably one of three residents of this frontier land at the time, 1730s. Peter was a descendant of Welsh settlers. That was a spoken tradition in the family, according to the famous Jefferson's own genealogical search. Jefferson's existed only in legal records in Chesterfield, England, near Sheffield. Sometimes plaintiffs, and sometimes as defendants, he wrote. And telling Leah Jefferson was secretary of the Virginia Company that founded the exploration of Virginia. Peter Jefferson possessed a strong mind and sound judgment, according to his son. He liked to explore the deep woods, helped make a map for the colony of Virginia, and he had a great collection of books, which his son would read. He spoke with and learned the languages of the Indians in the area. He liked his freedom of movement. He liked his liberty. In 1739, he married Jane Randolph, who was from a branch of one of the top Virginia families. That branch of the family had also moved a bit westward, though no one was as westward as Peter Jefferson at the time. The area soon grew. It would be an area that by 1790 would have 12,000 residents. Peter developed a property there, and in 1743, his son was born. Peter died when Jefferson was just 14 and could never know that his son would be president of the United States or even that such a place by that name would ever exist. Peter's country was Virginia, part of the British Empire probably would have referred to it as his country, 
Virginia. Yet in the walks he would take with his son and the lessons he was able to impart about the importance of the frontier and the importance of liberty, talking to Indians, he would have more of an influence on his country than he could ever imagine. With his father's death, as the younger Jefferson writes, the whole care and direction of myself was thrown upon myself entirely. He was sent away to a one-room schoolhouse to get a classical education with a well-known Scottish Presbyterian minister. Jefferson's education had always been rigorous. At the age of nine, he began studying Latin, Greek, and French. He learned to ride horses and began to appreciate the study of nature and playing music. He studied under the Reverend's family. Now he studied history, science, in a house that overlooked the village of Charlottesville. We are delving into the life of one of America's famous founders, one of the most popular. We know a lot about his middle age. We know a lot about his old age when he wrote the Declaration and became the independent nation's leader, when he carried on the correspondence with his former rival, John Adams. But what happened before he wrote the Declaration? How did he end up in Continental Congress? Well, the writer of that very document that declared American freedom to the world almost, almost did not make it to Philadelphia at all. But here and now, at age 16, Jefferson, accompanied by his slave Jupiter, and despite so many accounts of his own abhorrence to the practice of slavery, to the slave trade as an idea, his love of human freedom, his kindness towards others, Jefferson, a better off than average Virginian, owned slaves all his life. In fact, the amount of slaves he would own would increase in his adult life. Here, with his chess set and violin, he went to the college of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. His first year, well, Jefferson acted like I suppose a lot of college freshmen do. He had fun, and he met all kinds of people, scientific men, card players, fox hunters, horse jockeys. He went to dances, and he kind of wasted his first year. Not that he flunked, but he didn't see his full potential. And in his second year, he decided to take it really seriously. He studied 15 hours a day at books. He wrote, spent a lot of time in the college library. He was described by fellow students as having a mixture of charm and studiousness and seriousness, something that he would exhibit throughout his life. A professor noted his industry and introduced him to another, George Wythe. It would be a very important meeting. Wythe was the preeminent law expert in Virginia, and he himself would play a role that we'll talk about in the founding of America and would join Jefferson as a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He would soon act as Wythe's law clerk after college. This introduction would lead him to even another and perhaps even more important. The government of Virginia was held in the same town as the college, Williamsburg, Virginia, and the crown governor, Fauquier of Virginia, Jefferson would consider the most ablest person to hold the office, would invite him to the palace once a week for dinner, music, and talk. He would learn a lot about the Enlightenment and new ideas at the governor's mansion. That was my university, Jefferson said. It was apparent that all the things that people were reading and discussing, John Locke, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and their concept of freedom, might be at odds with the colonies and the way Parliament was treating the colonies. But no one as of yet was doing anything about that. He graduated. During this time, he was earning a living as a lawyer. And he made a healthy living with that profession. His client list included members of Virginia's elite families, including 
members of his mother's family, the Randolphs. Connections always help. At 27, he was able to purchase a property on the hill overlooking his father's, Monticello, the Little Mountain, and he'd own it for the rest of his life. In 1772, he married Martha Jefferson, the love of his life. As he made a good living as a lawyer, $3,000 a year in the colonies was not bad money. When laborers were making about $10 a month, even though he could probably only collect half of that from his clients, people didn't pay their legal bills so well in those days. He also dabbled in politics. When Patrick Henry introduced into the Virginia House of Burgesses, then at Williamsburg, his resolutions against the Stamp Act, Jefferson was listening and stood in the door of communication between the House and the lobby, where he heard the whole of Henry's speech. Henry was a great speaker, and as he started to rail against the British Empire and the actions of Parliament, he now turned his attention onto the king. Caesar had his Brutus. There was a still in the crowd. What was he going to say? Charles I had his Cromwell. Oh, God. Citing the enemy of all kings in the British Empire. And George III. Oh, the crowd stirred. He's not going to. George III could profit from their example. With those words, shouts of treason, treason filled the hall. Jefferson noticed how he handled it. If this be treason, then make the most of it. Jefferson said, remembering his political skill, I will remember well his pause. And he said the admirable address with which he recovered himself and baffled the charge just vociferated. Jefferson became an ally of Henry's as he joined the Virginia House of Burgesses at the age of 26, representing his home, Albemarle County. He would serve for six years there. In the first year in the House, September 1769, Jefferson attempted to pass a voluntary emancipation bill in Virginia, but was defeated. The howling question existed, what would freed slaves do once freed? He was unable to get that passed. Jefferson joined a group of young Turks who sought change in the way the Burgesses would run. The power of the Speaker was reduced, and the younger members acquired more power. And eventually that led to seeking change in the way their colony was run. He also met a lot of people through the introduction of Henry and others. He met Colonel George Washington, one of the more already one of the more famous men in Virginia, Benjamin Harrison, his fellow signer, George Mason, be an important founding father, Richard Henry Lee, who would lead the charge for independence. Like many, the Stamp Act incensed him, and as the newest member of the House of Burgesses, he was the 16th person to sign a protest against the Stamp Act. His fellow Burgess member, Colonel George Washington, also signed. Jefferson made a splash when, after British troops were sent to Massachusetts, he called for a day of fast and prayer out of sympathy for the people in Massachusetts. And in 1774, he would write the summary view of the rights of British America. Voluntary association with the crown is what America had. Parliament had no authority over us. The God who gave us life, Jefferson wrote, gave us liberty at the same time. It was read in England and America, and although he wasn't named as the author, it was known that a young member of the House of Burgesses, Thomas Jefferson, had written this at this time, Jefferson's patron, Governor Fauquier, had died, and tensions were mounting in America. A new governor, Lord Dunmore, John Murray, would take on the troublesome colonists. Jefferson would be seen not as a visitor to the governor's house anymore, but one of many troublemakers to the new governor of Virginia. When the House of Burgesses of the Colonial Assembly recommended the formation of a committee of correspondence to communicate their concerns 
to leaders in Great Britain and to the other colonies in March 1773, and Jefferson was a member of this group, Dunmore dissolved the assembly. Jefferson and other members of the House of Burgesses gathered a short distance away anyway in the Raleigh Tavern, which soon became the meeting for uh, the, the most radical of the members. Dunmore would be forced to restore the House of Burgesses, but when, in a gesture of support, Jefferson suggested that day of fasting and prayer in Virginia supporting the Massachusetts colonists, Dunmore again dissolved the House. Jefferson could turn a phrase, and people knew it. He could give a lift to the boring and dull legal documents of the day. In the following year, 1775, Jefferson was selected by the Virginia legislature to answer Lord North's famous conciliatory proposition, called in the language of the day his olive branch, where he tried to reach out to the colonists. As John Adams called it, the conciliatory proposition was an asp in a basket of flowers. Nice words, but still the steel hand of the British Empire over the colonies. Jefferson's response to the conciliatory proposition in which he wrote on behalf of the Virginia legislature was no declaration of independence. That fiery speech would come later. This time, Jefferson played it cool. There was no war planned at this time. Virginia still had plenty of loyalists. Yet he was firm. We've recently remonstrated with Parliament. They have added new injuries to old. We have wearied our king with supplications. He has not deigned to answer us. We have appealed to the native honor and justice of the British nation. Their efforts in our favor have hitherto been ineffectual. What then remains to be done? That we commit our injuries to the even-handed of justice of that being who doth no wrong, earnestly beseeching him to illuminate the counsels and prosper the endeavors of those to whom America hath confided her hopes that through her wise directions we may again see reunited the blessing of liberty, prosperity, and harmony with Great Britain. No declaration, again, calling for a restoration. Yet despite all the fame that Jefferson earned for all of this writing, one thing to keep in mind, and it's definitely a forgotten point of history, is that Jefferson was not the first among Virginians at the time. More famous people were going. Randolph, such as the Speaker of the House, Peyton Randolph, Richard Henry Lee, Colonel George Washington, Benjamin Harrison. These Eastern Virginians were first. In fact, Jefferson had not been on the list to go to Philadelphia at all. We almost didn't have the writer of the Declaration of Independence there in 1776 at the time. It was only that in 1775 there was an attempt to form a showdown with the House of Burgesses again. Dunmore had restored the House once again and reconvened it, and the House's Speaker was needed. So Peyton Randolph went to Williamsburg, and thus they needed to call the alternate, who was Thomas Jefferson from Albemarle County. And during his short few months of service in the Continental Congress prior to the independence decision, he made a quiet impression on most members. I have never heard him utter three sentences together, John Adams had said about him, but he had the reputation of a mighty pen. Yet Adams knew he had found his man. In selecting Jefferson to be the author of the Declaration of Independence, yes, he was interested in his skills of the writer, but also the politics of it. He needed a Virginian versus a New Englander to write this document. But also Jefferson was part of the political faction in Virginia that was the right one. Not everybody liked Richard Henry Lee, who had first made the motion for independence. Jefferson represented the Patrick Henry side of the Virginia delegation. 
Jefferson lived better during this period of his life than most Virginians. But still, as a Western Virginia, since his wealth was inherited and newly acquired, he still referenced the richer in Virginia all the time, the upper class. No matter what he did, he was constantly saying he could not unlock the cipher of aristocracy that was running his home colony. In this group, the aristocracy, Jefferson could not be included. But one who could be surely included is his fellow House of Burgess member and fellow signer, Benjamin Harrison. Big and affable would be the best way to describe Harrison, the kind of man that literally was going to throw off the yoke of imperial rule in the colonies. Benjamin Harrison was the descendant of a family long distinguished in the history of Virginia. Although he never became nationally famous himself, he would end up being the descendant of two presidents of the United States. His family mansion was on the James River, in full view of the seaport of Richmond, which, when the colony became the state, would become its capital. His life was a bit different than Jefferson's, so when we hear about all the things that Jefferson did, how hard he worked on his studies and such, it's not that Harrison did not. He was also a student at the College of William Mary, although he left to take care of the, the family when his father died. He was already, Harrison, born into considerable wealth and income. And he had a family that had strong connections with the royal government in the state. When trouble started in the colony, Harrison, for his influence and family name, was offered a top position in the Crown government, the Executive Council. He refused it. Not a lot of men in Virginia would have. 1774, Harrison was selected to the Continental Congress, and he served there until 1777. During nearly every session of that Congress, Mr. Harrison represented his native state. Harrison was also called to preside as chairman of the Committee of the Whole House, so it's a little different than being the president of Congress, which he briefly served as as well. But uh, when a certain debate would occur, for instance, the debates on the independence, you would go into committee of the whole house where everybody could discuss a matter as a committee, but including the whole body. From this story attributed to him, we know he was a big man and he liked to joke a little. While signing the Declaration of Independence, apparently, he noticed Mr. Gary of Massachusetts standing beside him. Mr. Harrison himself was quite corpulent. Gary might be considered slender and spare. Harrison turned to Elbridge Gary and said, We might both be hung. With me, it will be over in a minute, but you, Gary, will be kicking in the air half an hour after I am gone. Not unlike many signers, Benjamin Harrison was elected to be governor of his native state and stayed in affairs of the state after the revolution. He was twice re-elected to the governorship. He would serve another function on a state level, but important to the founding of the nation nonetheless. In 1788, when the new constitution of the United States was submitted to Virginia, he was returned as a member of the ratifying convention of the state. Of the first committee chosen by that body that of privileges and elections, he was appointed the chairman. Like many Virginians, he had reservations. Even if this document was approved by General Washington, by the National Confederation Congressman James Madison, by that famous law scholar George Wythe, he had his reservations, but he supported the Constitution. He knew we needed a better governing document, provided certain amendments could be made to it. He opposed the ratification until these should be incorporated into it. When, after the convention made its decision, it appointed a committee to prepare and report the amendments that they wanted to send to Congress as a condition for Virginia's approval, Harrison was a member of that committee and introduced a series of amendments, some of which are shaped in the Bill of Rights we know today. It should be noted that when 
Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Nelson, Richard Henry Lee, and other Virginians that we've talked about signed the Declaration of Independence. They left a small space at the top to be sure that there was enough room for one more signer. At the first round of signing of the Declaration, George Wythe was home taking care of his wife. The other Virginia signers wanted to make sure that the top spot went to him. It would be difficult to call with one of the young Turks from Virginia because he was 50 years old at the signing of, of the Declaration, but he was just as ready for a breakup with England as the youngins. He was just as radical. His father was a farmer. His mother was a woman of extensive knowledge for those times and taught with at home. He devoted himself to the profession and the study of law. He pursued his preparatory studies under the direction of a top lawyer in Virginia. He soon held equal rank with him and became one of the most studied and serious lawyers in the colony. Because of his superior learning, his greater industry, and his eloquence, he occupied the chief place at the bar of Virginia at the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And he got an appointment from his native county to a seat in the House of Burgesses, which he held for several years. And anybody he would have been a member of be considered one of the smartest. 1764, he was selected to write a petition to the king, a memorial to the House of Lords, and a statement to the House of Commons, protesting the Stamp Act and stating Virginia's objections. This was a big deal. You're talking about a letter that's going to be written to the highest seat of government to the British Empire. It's no task for a law student. With had the confidence of all in the colony. He was Virginia's best lawyer. He'd written many of the laws of the colony. Now he was taking on England. The tone and language of his paper reflected his spirited belief in the rights of the colony. As the head of the law school, the College of William Mary, his influence is seen on his pupils. Not only Thomas Jefferson, we talked about that, but President James Monroe, Speaker of the House Henry Clay, and future Supreme Court Justice John Marshall, all received instruction from him. Therefore, it could be said, because of that last pupil, that With could be considered the father of the modern U.S. Supreme Court. He set up the concept of the moot court, the moot legislature, where students would actually set up a mock trial. You'd have prosecutors and defendants, and he would act as judge, and they'd do the case that way to give people real training in the law. After he had success with this, Harvard copied his example, and all the law schools existing in America at the time followed. With was not happy with the actions of Parliament and would come to Philadelphia in 1776 predisposed towards independence or some type of strong statement of arms, at least. It was an evolution, however. He was not initially as much of a radical as Patrick Henry. A young man who became a member of the House of Burgesses as With was already sitting on the bar. When Henry wanted the Virginia House to pass a resolution worded this way, Resolve, therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony shall have the sole right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that any attempt to vest such power in any persons or persons whatsoever other than the General Assembly aforesaid has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. A radical statement from Henry. Mr. With opposed that motion, but the House, under the spell of Henry's speech, passed his resolve. Then, the next day, when Henry and his golden throat was not present, they rescinded the paragraph. This would not be the first argument that Wythe would have with Henry. He had actually refused Patrick Henry Barr 
as a member of the committee approving new lawyers, he felt Henry hadn't studied enough. Yet, in this case, Wythe was outvoted by the other two members. After Wythe's service in Philadelphia and the signing of the document in the year 1777, he was elected the Speaker of the House of Delegates now, the State Legislature of Virginia. And during the same year, he was appointed Judge on the High Court of Chancery in Virginia. When Virginia set up a court of equity to handle those cases, he was also appointed Chancellor. He would run Virginia's court system for 20 years. You didn't need an army of redcoats to burn your property in order to lose it during the Revolution. Wythe didn't lose his property, but he was severely reduced in his finances during the Revolution. Suffered greatly. His devotion to public services left him little opportunity to attend to private affairs. And this would be something that's common among many of these signers. It's something we forget about. Spending a lot of their time volunteering in the war effort and in the effort of running the new nation. In his case, his superintendent had nearly bankrupted him. But he was able at least to earn enough as a, as a chancellor to be able to discharge the debts he had and preserve his financial independence. With is one of those several signers who participated in the next great document of the founding of America's government, the Constitution. Along with Alexander Hamilton, he was asked by George Washington to design rules for what would be the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia, 1787. He designed those rules, and at that convention, he was a delegate from Virginia. He supported the Constitution. As the new nation worked under that Constitution and two parties founded, his political opinions were more with the Republicans, with the Jeffersons, but he wasn't a partisan person. He did oppose the alien and sedition laws, the raising of the army during the administration of President Adams, but he was never a partisan. Twice he voted for Jefferson as an elector. It is here where the story gets a bit sad. With sister's grandson, George With Sweeney, was a troublesome nephew and caused a lot of trouble. He sometimes stayed for weeks and months at the house and assumed an air of entitlement. He was brash, headstrong, and irresponsible. He came as when as he pleased. With tried to exert a positive influence on him without much success. Here was a man who had reached the top eminence in a new state of Virginia, had a big influence on the founding of the nation of the United States, and had to deal yet with this uh, troublesome member of his family in the house. Sweeney was a regular at Richmond's gambling dens. And to pay off these debts, he was not above selling books stolen from Judge Wythe's library or even forging checks using his uncle's name. The exasperated judge finally threatened that he would cut Sweeney out of the will if he didn't change his ways. This led to a series of events, tragic events. According to the account of Wythe's longtime former slave and now freed paid servant, as she prepared the coffee for the morning, Sweeney insisted that she make her toast. As she was at the griddle occupied, she thought she saw Sweeney putting something into the coffee. Michael Brown, an African-American student who Wythe was teaching, and Wythe was uh, fond of doing this. He wanted to impart education. on. He would often take uh, slaves and their children under his wing and provide an education, seeking to demonstrate as we reached 1806 that there was no difference in human potential between the races, something he wrote many letters to Jefferson about. Sadly, though, Brown and Wythe's servant and with himself all drank the coffee. Michael Brown fell dead on the table immediately. With never had a doubt, he said, I am murdered. Even as doctors, top doctors in Virginia, suspected it was not poison. It was cholera, perhaps, from tainted strawberries. With said, I am murdered, and it is my nephew. For two weeks in great pain, he lived on. Always insisted he was his nephew seeking to get his inheritance, and then he passed. There would be a case against Sweeney 
it would not go well. The autopsy was botched. And although it was actually possible in the technology of 1806 to test for arsenic, it was not done properly. Meanwhile, it was found that the nephew had, a few days after the alleged poisoning, forged a check. And thanks to the industrious bank manager, it was not cashed. And so Sweeney was tried for forgery as well. But the jury, led by defense lawyer William Wirt, seeking fame, found George with Sweeney innocent. Then, saying that the laws of Virginia didn't have a provision for forgery against a bank, only for forgery against individuals, they found him innocent of the forgery charge as well. The nation from Massachusetts to Georgia was outraged by this acquittal. Fearing that he would be killed anywhere in the United States, his family gave him some money and a horse, and he escaped. He went to Tennessee. There, he was convicted of being a thief. We know he spent some time in prison. This is the frontier. Records trail off, and nothing's known about what happened to Sweeney after that. Well, obviously, it's never been proven that Sweeney killed with, or that he intended to kill him. It could have been that he just intended to kill the maid and the former uh, student who had a provision in the will. In any case, with got the better of him even after death. He had changed his will and already disinherited the nephew anyway. Don't mess with the father of American law. This story of a signer of the Declaration is not a happy one, not the kind that we like to tell on this cast, but it's nonetheless most likely the story of what happened. But no jealous nephew could take away With's contribution to the founding of the nation and its laws that he would have under his relatively long life when compared to all the signers. By his last will and testament, he bequeathed his valuable library to Jefferson and distributed the remainder of his little property among the grandchildren of his sister and some funds to his former slaves. Upon his death, he set all of them free. With was opposed to slavery. Beginning in 1787, he had started to free his slaves. After the death of his second wife, he encouraged Jefferson to do the same. As a Virginia justice, in the case of Hudgens v. Wright, on the year of his death, 1806, he tried to end slavery in Virginia by judicial interpretation in a very clever way. In a case involving an Indian family who were uh, claiming that they were free because of their Indian descent, he referred to the 1776 Virginia Declaration of Rights at the basis that all men should be considered presumptively free, and that meant Africans as well as whites. He got enough justices to go along with his decision to free the particular family in the case who were of American Indian descent, but he couldn't get it done. The other justices in their concurring position proved it of the decision, but not the interpretation of the Declaration of Rights. Sadly, though, he'd go a long way to improving Virginia's law. He was not able to end slavery in the colony through the courts. A few weeks after With's death, Richmond Mayor William Duval sent a touching letter to Thomas Jefferson, and now the president. I believe that the great and good Mr. With loved you as sincerely as if you had been his son. His attachment was founded on his thorough knowledge of you personally. Some years ago, he mentioned that if there was an honest man in America, Thomas Jefferson was that person. Everything he said has been verified, sir. Jefferson wrote back to Mayor Duval. I had reserved with fondness for the day of my retirement the hope of inducing With to pass much of his time with me. It would have been a great pleasure to recollect with him first opinions on the new state of things which arose soon after my acquaintance with him, to pass in review the long period which has elapsed since that time. With our discussion of these three important Virginians, that will be enough for now. A bit more Virginia when we continue, and I think it's time to tackle that question of whether these guys who signed the Declaration of Independence were all just rich men. 
or not? And why is it important? What does it say about times then and times today? I want to thank you for listening. If you like the program, please give us a positive review on iTunes. And I do have another podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.